This episode is brought to you by VinSmart. Need help with your recall campaigns? DMVs, government agencies, fleet owners can learn more by visiting vinsmart.com slash businesses or call 1-888-950-9550. Welcome to AmbaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Amva community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the AmbaCast, everyone. This week, we are talking to one of Amva's transportation partners, a partner sister association, if you will. We're going to learn a little bit about the International Bridge Tunnel and Turnpike Association, the IBTTA. And to talk to me this week about it is their executive director and CEO, Patrick Jones. I'll introduce him as Patrick, but from here on out, I'll call him Pat because that's how I've known him for years. And I think anyone who knows Pat knows him as Pat. So Pat, welcome to your first appearance on our Amvacast. Ian, it's great to be here and it's great to see you. I know uh, the audience can't see you, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you in person sometime real soon. Yeah, uh, me as well. We are often at many mutual coalition and other types of gatherings together, and we get to see each other once every few months. And uh, to have gone now this almost a year and a half coming up on two years, it does seem a a long time. Time is slow yet flies by at the same time. Yeah, our members are really anxious to get together uh, soon. And our annual meeting is October 10 through 12 in Anaheim. And this will be the first time in almost two years that our membership has been able to get together. So we're really excited about that and looking forward to seeing our members in person. Yeah, um, we're, we're in a similar situation, but let's talk about your members. That's a great place to kind of kick it off. When you talk about your members, for those that aren't familiar with IBTTA, tell us a little bit about what that means when you talk about your members. Okay, so IBTTA, the International Bridge, Tunnel, and Turnpike Association, kind of a mouthful. We stick with the acronym because it's easier (laughs) to say. And we are the worldwide association for the owners and operators of toll facilities and businesses that serve the industry. So our members are organizations like the New Jersey Turnpike, the Pennsylvania Turnpike, the Golden Gate Bridge, the George Washington Bridge, Florida's Turnpike, anybody that operates a toll facility in the United States and in 25 other countries. We're actually an international association based in the U.S. with uh, members in, uh, in about 25 other countries. So half of our membership are the owners and operators of toll facilities, and the other half are the businesses that support them, technology companies and engineering firms firms that make possible electronic toll collection like EasyPass. So uh, so that's, that's IBTTA, and uh, our mission is to advance transportation solutions through tolling and other forms of user payment. Now, I want to look at, dig just a little bit deeper on the owners and operators of toll facilities, because for our listeners that are very attuned to, in the most cases, the motor vehicle administrations are public entities, their state, jurisdictional, provincial government agencies. In the toll operation world, there's more of a a mix and hybrid. Some are very much public owned and operated. Some are private. Some are partnerships. But I would imagine your membership becomes somewhat agnostic to that, that it's more about do you operate a toll facility as opposed to how you are operationally organized. 
Ian, that's exactly right. We have both public sector and private sector members that operate toll facilities within the membership of IBTTA. In the U.S., most of the members are public facilities. There are or publicly owned and operated facilities. There are a handful of, uh, of private operators. And uh, in, uh, in Europe and in other parts of the world, the private concessionaire is more of the norm than the publicly owned toll facility. So uh, as you say, we have a variety of, of uh, membership types, uh, both public agencies uh, as well as private concessionaires. And does that ever change the dynamic when different operators are talking to each other or in terms of what they need from IBTTA to support them? You know, I, I would say that uh, the kinds of support and information that our members desire is similar across the board, whether you're a, a, a private concessionaire or a, a public, uh, publicly owned and operated toll facility. We are a convener of these types of organizations and get our members together uh, for big conferences like our annual meeting five to six times a year. And we organize uh, groups of our members in disciplines like technology, maintenance and roadway operations, finance, etc. And the issues that they are confronting tend to cut across mm -hmm. uh, both the public and the private entities. Mm. And about, I would say maybe 10, 12 years ago, there was a strong push and there was a trend of going more towards privatization or at least, you know, private-public partnerships. Um, has that trend continued? Has it slowed down? How do you see that business model evolving? The question is about privatization. And one of the big things people point to in terms of privatization in the United States is the deal that transferred uh, the Chicago Skyway and the Indiana Toll Road from public operation and ownership to a leased uh, circumstance mm -hmm. in which a private operator or a consortium of operators, Sintra and Macquarie, came in and engaged in a long-term lease of these two facilities. The, the Chicago Skyway and the Indiana Toll Road continued to be owned publicly, but there was a long-term lease in which the consortium obtained the right to operate the facility for an extended period of time on the order of 75 years in exchange for the ability to collect those tolls. Mm -hmm. So the private company, the concessionaire, had the responsibility to operate and maintain the facility up to a standard that was established within the contract. And in exchange for that, they obtained the right to collect the tolls for a period of time. And essentially what this is, it's a transfer of risk from the public sector to the private sector. And the, the private sector consortium in obtaining the concession rights made an upfront payment to the state of Indiana and to the city of Chicago to have the right to operate those toll facilities. So the advantage from the, the public uh, operator, in, in this case, Indiana and uh, the city of Chicago, they got a, uh, some upfront cash mm -hmm. that they could use to invest in other infrastructure assets. Right. 
and the private operator got the ability as well as the responsibility and the risk to operate the facility for an extended period of time in exchange for the right to collect that toll revenue. So that was a big deal back in 2003. We have seen some other uh, similar deals in this country and most recently they've tended to be for express lanes or priced managed lanes. Mm. And the one that you're probably familiar with most in the Washington DC area is the 495 express lanes of course, in of which Transurban, which is an Australian uh, based firm, came in and made a proposal to the state of Virginia and said, hey, uh, we would like to create some express lanes here, price managed lanes in which people can get into these lanes for a price that varies based on the amount of traffic in those lanes. And uh, we will completely rebuild this 14 mile stretch of the Capitol Beltway, not only the express lanes, but the general purpose lanes as well, all of the interchanges and all of the bridges that cross the Beltway. And uh, we will do this in exchange for the right to collect the tolls, the uh, express lane tolls for the next, I think, 75 years. So that is a, a relatively common practice that we've seen not only uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, but in uh, other places as well. And would it be fair to say, as particularly in the U.S., as states struggle through the challenges of infrastructure funding to do the types of repairs and enhancements that you use in that example, uh, that you might expect to see more of those projects in the coming years, or are states and toll authorities moving away from, from that model? What, what, you know, a little bit of a crystal ball, not yeah. going to hold you to it, but yeah. you know, when, you, when you hear the conversation from your members, what, what would you expect the trend to be over the, you know, the next era? So as we're having this conversation, we are seeing discussion of the uh, a big infrastructure package in Congress. Mm -hmm. And we're also seeing discussion of reauthorization of the traditional five to six year surface transportation plan. And one of the challenges that the Congress has faced in the last, I'll say, 10 to 12 years is how do you fund an infrastructure bill or how do you fund a surface transportation reauthorization? We know that since 2008, the Congress has transferred something like $150 billion from the general treasury into the Federal Highway Trust Fund because the federal gas tax has not been increased since 1993. Mm -hmm. And so gas tax revenues are declining uh, as a result of increased fuel economy and the fact that we simply have not indexed the fuel tax to inflation. So we're seeing at the federal level a dramatic decline in, in gas tax revenues, user fees to support the Federal Highway Trust Fund. Mm -hmm. Most of the beneficiaries of the Federal Highway Trust Fund are the 50 states or 52 states if you count the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. I was listening to Jim Tymon talk about uh, Ashto and his members. So uh, there is a, uh, states are strapped for funding. 
Some of the states have taken matters into their own hands and increased their own state gas taxes. Right. But in, in many cases, that still isn't enough to make up for the gap. So states are turning to other forms of user financing and funding, and that includes tolling and price-managed lanes. Yeah. Since the, the, the first price-managed lane facility in this country was the 91 express lanes in California, and that was in, I'm going to say, the early 1990s. Since that time, we have seen an increase in, of something like 40 different express lane or price managed lane facilities in a dozen states around the country. So this is definitely a, a trend that is happening in America, especially in congested urban areas where you're trying to reduce congestion and ease the gridlock that can happen at, uh, at uh, the morning and evening rush hour. You're seeing states and regional governments, cities, moving in the direction of price managed lanes. And when you talk about the, that this is a challenge in, in America, you mentioned at the outset, you know, very international, the demographics of your, your association and having been to your meetings, it's, it's evident when you, when you go there. Trends similar in other parts of the world, or does the rest of the world look at America with eyes wide open saying this is a, an unusual dynamic you guys have going on here? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I'm not aware of any other uh, price managed lane facilities in the rest of the world like we have here in the United States. Hmm. There are congestion charging zones or cordon pricing in cities like London and Stockholm, sure. in which you uh, you draw a circle or you you know you draw a, a boundary around an urban area, and you say to enter this zone, you're going to have to pay a toll, and uh, so that exists outside the United States. But as far as price managed lanes, nothing operational yet. We had a uh, a, a trade mission or a uh, a fact-finding tour from a group of toll operators in France come to the United States about three years ago and visit price-managed lane facilities in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., because they're thinking about doing something similar in France. Fascinating. Yes. So now, it's it's an idea that's, that's coming up uh, outside the U.S. as well. You mentioned a little bit earlier about how... Um, the different jurisdictions are trying to figure out how to close the gap on revenue. One of the other ideas that is continuing to be talked about a lot, particularly as it relates to reauthorization and an infrastructure bill, is of course the role of other types of funding, mileage-based user fees, road use charge, whatever you want to call that type of infrastructure financing system. How does the toll world and the toll authorities tie into that conversation around a different way to do essentially what tolling does, which is pay by what you're using. I think of tolling as a facility charge, and I think of VMT or mileage-based user fees or road okay. usage charging. Your favorite, whatever the favorite acronym is. Whatever, right? whatever your favorite acronym <laughs> is. I think of those as system charges. So think about when you build a toll facility, let's say you go back to 1940, the mid-1930s, and we're going to build 140 miles of Pennsylvania Turnpike, 
and we're going to do it in two years and we're going to issue debt and we're going to have all the money up front to build this facility and then we pay that debt off over time using the tolls collected from the from the users all right that's similar to issuing a mortgage to build or buy a home everybody understands that concept mm -hmm. if uh, you, you can't you can't uh, buy a home uh, you know if you're making twenty thousand dollars a year and you want to have a home that's that costs uh, you know one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year it's hard to come up with the cash just right. out of savings right. so you take out a big loan for you know a hundred or hundred fifty thousand dollars and then you pay that off over time a toll facility is a is a similar concept so think of a of a toll as a facility charge many or most of the major toll facilities in this country came about because the the state didn't want to invest its fuel tax revenues or didn't want to didn't have the ability to build such a large facility all at one time and so people created special purpose facilities toll facilities turnpike authorities to build these now get to the idea of a mileage-based user fee in most instances a uh, mileage-based user fee or road usage charge is intended to take the place of the fuel tax we all know that uh, state of uh, oregon was the first state to have a fuel tax back in 1919 and since then every state has adopted that but the reason we're looking at vmt is because the fuel tax is seen as unsustainable we're going to be moving to electric vehicles so how do you how do you replicate what a fuel tax is like that would be a vmt and i see it as a as a system charge i also see vmt and tolling as being complementary uh institutions i i could see in the in the not too distant future uh vmt charges being used for an entire system within a state or maybe in the country uh, existing alongside tolling to repay the debt that was in, initially incurred when you built that facility and you can i can see them all existing side by side with price managed lanes so i don't see them in competition with one another yeah i also see the possibility that the operators of toll facilities and the companies that provide that technology would be in the business of VMT or road usage charging. That in the tolling industry, my members have the experience with the technology, the customer service, the in-lane systems, the back office systems, all of those kinds of things that would make a VMT workable they have all of that capability, and we could apply that to a VMT, which is a system charge. Mm -hmm. And one of those areas, it's a good segue because, you know, the experience of technology, tracking a customer and collecting, uh, collecting that revenue, one of the transitions that have happened quite aggressively over the past decade is, you know, what we refer to as all electronic tolling and the move away from tolls. But before we go there, you know, you talked earlier about your members being together in person for the first time. The reality, though, of course, is when this pandemic hit, there were still plenty of facilities, I would imagine, that were not yet electronic toll facilities and still had individuals at a toll booth. How, how did your members navigate 
especially the early days when we didn't know much about the virus and they had to still have individuals interacting, you know, at a window exchanging dollars and coins? It's a good question. So when the pandemic hit back in March of 2020, many toll facilities that had the ability to collect tolls electronically and also had cash on their system decided almost overnight to go all electronic. Mm -hmm. And for those individuals who had transponders or toll tags in their vehicle, they continued to operate as normally. If you didn't have a tag, they would use cameras to take a picture of your license plate and process the toll that way. They'd look up the vehicle record and track, uh, you know, find out who the owner of the vehicle was and, and send them in the, uh, a bill in the mail. Some facilities that had cash collection actually continued to uh, collect cash under very special circumstances in which they had personal protective equipment for the toll collectors and tried to minimize contact and exposure. But I would say for most of the industry, they attempted a uh, sort of a, an overnight transition from uh, either mixed uh, electronic tolling and cash to all electronic tolling. And this phenomenon has caused some toll agencies to accelerate their plans to go from mixed ETC and cash to all electronic tolling. And so and to be clear for our listeners who might be less familiar, a facility that gets rid of cash and is now all electronic tolling, they would either not see a toll booth or they might see one, but it's closed and you just keep driving through. And like you said, you're either, you either have a transponder in your vehicle or your license plate is being captured, which of course is a topic that's near and dear to our members. And it's, a, I think, a, a shared area of content is this area of license plate readers and license plate reader technology uh, and how that, how that works for them to get their bill. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about license plate readers and license plate reader technology. Um, how is your membership feeling these days about the, the state of that technology to clearly capture the image, get them a good plate, um, and then being able to retrieve the information they need to, to send that bill? Well, for our members, obviously, the simplest and cleanest and the cheapest way to collect a toll is using a transponder and a reader in the lane, mm -hmm. electronic toll collection. That, that uh, by far is the, the simplest and cheapest way to uh, collect a toll. For those customers who don't have a transponder, yes, we have to go and read a license plate. And that's challenging because there's what we call leakage. Uh, leakage happens for one of three different reasons. One would be technical leakage, and that's the term we use when the cameras or the devices in the lane don't get an accurate image, a clear image of a license plate. Uh, that can be for a lot of different reasons. Uh, maybe there's the camera is fogged up, maybe the license plate is, is obscured, maybe the lights in the lane didn't work properly at, at night. For whatever reason, we don't capture a good license plate image. That's called technical leakage. Now, there's a second type of leakage that's called business leakage. Let's assume we do get the image and we can process it, 
Now we have to look up the owner of the vehicle and send that person a, a bill. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the records are not always uh, as accurate as they could be. Uh, our uh, consultants and vendors have databases that they use. Some of them come from uh, motor vehicle uh, administrations. And uh, for whatever reason, it may not be as accurate as it could be. So we can't find the person. So that's called business leakage. And then the last type of leakage is default leakage. This is the condition where, yes, we can read the license plate, Yes, we can identify the owner of the vehicle and send them a bill, but no, for whatever reason, the owner, the operator refuses to pay the bill. And that is default leakage. Mm -hmm. And that is by far the largest source of leakage that we have in collecting tolls in our industry. I, I can't give you a percentage across the industry, but it can amount to tens of millions of dollars across all of the uh, the operators uh, in America. So it's a, it's a significant issue. And because it's such an important issue, we have a lost revenue task force within IBTTA that's, uh, that's looking at this issue and trying to find better solutions. We've also worked across organizations like we have a relationship with AMVA, your association, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, we have relationships with groups like uh, the uh, the Eastern Transportation Coalition that used to be called the I-95 Corridor Coalition also had a group looking at, uh, at uh, tolling leakage. So there are many collaborative and cooperative efforts going on to try to reduce this type of leakage, but we haven't found the silver bullet yet. And I think one of the challenges of that that some of our listeners might, might find interesting is that depending on the type of facility you're operating, where you're located, your remedy to collect that leakage varies greatly. Some agencies have protocols and relationships with either the Motor Vehicle Administration or somewhere else where there's a, a stronger hammer, if you will, to come down on the, the people that are just choosing not to pay versus there are other places where the toll agencies are fairly hamstrung. There's little they can do to go after that scofflaw. That's exactly right. And so one of the things that, uh, that our members are working on is a more standard form of toll violation enforcement reciprocity. There are groups of states that have sort of uh, cooperative agreements. Let's, let's take the states of Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. It, they have a tripartite agreement in which each state will enforce its own laws or the laws of another state against uh, people from those other states that violate within their own states. Mm -hmm. In essence, they're treating the area, the, the three-state region as sort of a, a common zone in which everybody is subject to the, to the same rules. Uh, that doesn't exist all across the country. You know, uh, some, uh, some states are really cooperate very well with their neighbor states and, and others uh, don't cooperate quite as well. So it's, it's finding ways to, uh, to build more effective toll violation enforcement reciprocity among the states. Do you find the, another type of leakage or reciprocity question that comes to my mind is even with the transponders, not all facilities, even within the U.S., let alone internationally, are based upon the same 
transponder in the, in the same system, right? I, I live in Maryland. I'm an easy pass customer. I have an easy pass transponder. It does not mean though that I can go through every toll facility in the United States with my easy pass transponder. That's, that's exactly right. So we call this interoperability. We call it electronic toll collection interoperability. And the ultimate goal is uh, for anybody who has a transponder from any agency to be able to have their toll paid on any facility using their home transponder. And we're getting closer. In fact, uh, EasyPass, which you mentioned, you're a, a Maryland user of, of EasyPass, is uh, one of, if not the largest area of electronic toll collection interoperability in the world. It has something like uh, 18 states and uh, 40 different uh, toll facilities that all participate and use the EasyPass brand. And all of these states uh, cooperate in uh, fulfilling the transactions of uh, any customer within the system. We are, IBTTA and its members have been working diligently over the last several years to knit together the regions of interoperability within the country. In fact, uh, not too long ago, EasyPass and SunPass became uh, totally interoperable so that uh, anybody with an EasyPass that operates on uh, turnpikes and toll facilities within the state of Florida can uh, operate interoperability on the, operate interoperably uh, on those facilities. And the SunPass customers who have a special uh, SunPass slash EasyPass protocol can uh, operate in, uh, in uh, EasyPass in the Northeast. So we're working to knit together not only those two regions, the Northeast and the South, but also the Central uh, U.S. hub and the Western U.S. hub. And when you say knit together, I'm curious how you're you're doing that on, on the back end a little bit. And maybe this is a, a little bit selfish and I'll use my host privilege because we are for the very first time soon going to take the auto train uh, from Virginia to Florida. And so nice. for the very first time, I'll have my own vehicle in Florida with my EasyPass transponder. So I'm really excited to hear now I can just go through those SunPass lanes. That's exactly um, right. Will I just see it appear on my EasyPass bill? Will SunPass send me something through EasyPass? How do those mechanics work to create that interoperable experience? Well, that's a really good question. I don't have the technical answer for you, Ian. I suspect that you will see uh, the tolls register on your normal EasyPass bill. But, uh, you know, don't take my word on this for, <laughs> for the gospel truth. But uh, I do know that uh, that there is a, an interoperable experience, and it'll and, be invisible to me as the as the driver. I will it, not it know should the be difference. it should be invisible to you. Uh, you know, think about think about interoperability between different regions of the country. Let's say between Easy Pass and say the central hub that involves mm -hmm. Texas and Oklahoma and Kansas. Uh, those folks. So. You might have apps on your phone, like uh, you've got a Starbucks app because uh, you got to get your coffee in the morning. And maybe, uh, you know, occasionally you like to go to McDonald's to get a burger for your kids or what have you. And you've got a McDonald's app on your on your smartphone. So the Starbucks app lets you buy anything you want in a Starbucks store and the McDonald's app lets you, lets you buy anything you want in a McDonald's. 
But if you go to Starbucks with your McDonald's app, they're going to say, sorry, we can't help you. And the reason is that they don't recognize you as a customer. They haven't, if you're using the McDonald's app in the Starbucks store, Starbucks doesn't have your financial information mm -hmm. and a credit card and all that kind of stuff that's associated with you. And interoperability is, is a similar thing. You, you know, the apps might look similar, but in the background, they don't all act the same way. And so when, when I say knitting together these regions of interoperability, I'm talking about knitting together all of the financial applications that happen in the background. Neat. Yeah, our, and our, our listeners are um, very familiar with that concept of interoperability because it's something that we are working aggressively on in the world of mobile driver's license. It may be something that has or has not popped up on the radar in, in your industry, but just like you have an app for everything else on your phone, the idea is why can't I have an app for my driver's license and identity card? And the answer is yes, you can. We want to make sure, however, just like you can't use your Starbucks app in McDonald's. We want to make sure that when I get my MDL from Maryland, I could use it in Tennessee or Wisconsin or anywhere else I go. And so we're um, aggressively working on exactly that interoperability. But your your example of the private sector apps that so many people are familiar with is a really great illustration of how interoperability works. So what else is next for IBTTA and the, and the toll industry? We talked about road use charge. We talked about interoperability. You know, we talked about how the pandemic has impacted your members. Uh, what else is on the horizon for the key priorities uh, for your, your industry as we hopefully try to move out of the pandemic? Yeah, well, uh, Ian, it's a great question. And I would say that as states and our whole country look toward VMT, road usage charging, mileage-based user fees, I think this is one of the things that's, uh, that is and needs to be in the wheelhouse of IBTTA and our members. Uh, there is, in, in both uh, the House and Senate reauthorization bills, there's language that talks about having a VMT pilot and creating a, uh, an advisory board that will uh, oversee the pilot and at least in the Senate bill, the tolling industry is mentioned as one of the organizations or one of the industry groups to participate in that. So we very much want to uh, be participating in, uh, in the VMT pilot and see that uh, advance. I think the other thing uh, that is really important to our members is electrification of the transportation system and uh, doing it in a way that is going to be helpful to consumers and uh, uh, helpful to everybody in the transportation system as we migrate away from the uh, internal combustion engine. And of course, uh, the issue of autonomous and connected vehicles. This is another mm -hmm. uh, very important challenge that all of us in transportation are, be, are gonna be confronting. So, and you can't ignore the, the issue of funding and finance. I think, uh, at least in the United States, we need to have a robust reauthorization. I think uh, the Congress ought to uh, make the use of tolling and uh, price managed lanes easier for states to implement, not harder. We ought not to put barriers in the way of states trying to toll some of their highways, including interstate highways for the purpose of reconstruction. 
So those are just a, a handful of issues that are on the agenda for IBTTA. And before I let you go, Pat, uh, we'd love our listeners to learn a little bit more about you. And I have some great researchers that helped me out. And if I'm correct, <laughs> you're coming up on uh, nearly two decades leading IBTTA. That's exactly right. And, and Ian, I just want to backtrack a little bit and mention one other issue. And oh, that, would be, that would be mobile payments. Uh-huh. Because uh, as we talked about with the apps on your smartphones, there are so many mobile payment apps and uh, we have traditionally relied on transponders mm -hmm. and roadside readers. And uh, we're seeing so much more happening in mobile payments. This is a huge issue for our industry as uh, the big tech companies become more and more involved in transportation. We're going to have to become really sophisticated about mobile payments. So when you uh, talk about mobile payments, you're talking about, you know, the Venmos, the PayPal's, the Apple Pay, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So I'm, I'm just going to jump. Maybe it's a leapfrog. Maybe it's not. Do you see a scenario or, or is the industry talking about a scenario where the mobile payment app can be the transponder? I mean, if I have a mobile payment app on my phone that has GPS that identifies I'm going through the facility, can I just identify it, say, yes, Venmo, pay this facility, uh, and my phone becomes my transponder connected to my mobile payment? Ian, I think that's definitely one of the examples of how this could work, and there are many other examples as well. Uh, we're seeing lots of experimentation with, with mobile payments happening right now in our industry, and we've seen it in the experiments with the, uh, uh, the VMT uh, charging that uh, the Eastern Transportation mm -hmm. Coalition has done and the state of Oregon and a, do and a dozen other states. So yes, the example you, you propose is definitely one, and there are, there are many, many others that, uh, that could make their way into our industry and, and be implemented. So more of the, the new frontier and the new technology that is going to continue to shift the landscape for you and your members. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the, the other little fun fact that my uh, researchers found on you that I just I have to ask you about is you are a singer. At least that's what my researchers tell me. Yeah, I like to sing. And uh, I, I guess I've sung in choirs almost my entire life from from elementary school uh, through college and then after college, I've sung in church choirs. It uh, it gives me a lot of joy. Uh, you know, uh, probably I would say I was in college before I met somebody who said, "Well, I can't sing" or "I don't sing," and that just that didn't make sense to me. It was like, "What do you mean you can't sing? Everybody can sing." And uh, for some reason, uh, when I when I entered the adult years for real. The, the notion of singing became something of a of a novelty, mm -hmm. but uh, but I really do love it. My whole family is musical. My wife and I met in a church choir. Uh, I have uh, two daughters and a son. Uh, all of them were musical. Two of our children were in marching band in high school. One was in marching band in college. And my son, uh, Sam, is an actor and musician and uh so, you know, he comes by honestly from his mom and dad who who love to sing and, and yeah. make music. Very good. 
Sounds a lot like the Grossman household. I got some listeners on here who know know what I'm talking about. Well, that's fantastic, Pat. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today to talk about IBTTA, to talk about the issues that your members are facing and, and will be facing. Uh, we'll look forward to staying connected and having you back for more conversations. Also wishing you a lot of luck in October with the first meeting. We're preparing for hours uh, at the, the end of August. Um, it'll be great to get everybody back together again. Ian, it's been a pleasure to be on the show. I really appreciate uh, your research and everything that you folks do over at AMBA. I wish you well at your annual conference, and I'm going to invite you to come and, and be a part of Cafe IBTTA one of these days real soon. So thanks for having me. Can't, can't wait. For all of you, thanks for tuning in, listening this week. Thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin, and we'll see you back here next week on the AmbaCast. Until then, stay well, everyone. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Recall Buzz, powered by VinSmart. Visit us at ambacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.